Good morning. I am so glad to be back here this morning for the rest of this conference. We are continuing on with our conversation about trials, about enduring trials, not just enduring trials, but enduring them by God's grace with joy, counting them all joy, considering them joy. And today we are going to be talking about uh, how we are equipped to respond to the trials that God sends into our lives. On a hazy evening in 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. was flying his wife and his sister-in-law to his cousin's wedding in Martha's Vineyard when his Piper Saratoga crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. All three were killed instantly, and it was concluded after they did the investigation that what had caused the accident was that JFK Jr. fell victim to something called spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation occurs when the pilot loses his visual frame of reference, like the horizon, when he can't see the horizon or the ground clearly to tell him which way is up. Conditions that would occur if you're, if you're flying in a, on a dark, hazy night over water. You have no frame of reference, no horizon, you can't see the ground, everything looks the same. What happens is that when he can't see a visual frame of reference, the pilot's inner ear and his eyes, his senses, actually start sending him wrong messages. They stop being trustworthy. They stop being true. His senses tell him, oh, may maybe, maybe you're not what level, so maybe you need to adjust just a little bit, go this way, when actually the whole time he's level. So when he makes that adjustment, well, now he's banking the aircraft without even realizing it. And he begins to descend, but he's confused because he feels like he's flying wings level. But when in actuality, he's begun to bank the aircraft to descend ever so slightly. So when he looks at the instruments in front of him, he's confused when he sees he's losing altitude. He doesn't feel like that at all. So he sees that he's losing altitude. He pulls up, but because he's already in a bank and he pulls up, it actually just sends the aircraft into a steeper dive. And he can detect none of this physiologically. And so he believes, as he's looking at his instruments, that maybe there's something wrong with the instruments, because that's not how I feel at all. And this is what happened to him that night. Spatial disorientation is such a powerful phenomenon that a pilot can go from flying in safe conditions with a horizon to becoming disoriented and crashing to the ground in just 178 seconds. That's less than three minutes. The solution to this phenomenon is actually quite simple. Trust what your instruments tell you more than what you feel. Life or death in that situation hinges on where the pilot believes truth is found in that moment. Is it in how he feels? Or is it in what the truth external to him and what his instruments are telling him? John F. Kennedy Jr.'s aircraft that night was equipped with all the instrumentation he needed to detect what was happening to stay wings level. He had the basic understanding of how to read and use those instruments, but on that night, he listened to what he felt was true, what he thought was true, rather than believing what the instruments were telling him what was true, and it cost him his life. We learned yesterday that God is often pleased to give his saints the strength to endure their trials rather than granting them escape from their trials. And our question this morning is, if we know that trials will come, and that endurance is required, how do we do that? How do we respond to trials well when they come? And again, for the answer to that, we're going to look at God's word. We're going to see again how crucial 
the foundation of our faith is. How crucial it is to know the character and promises of God. Make no mistake, that foundation, those are our instruments. That is what keeps us wings level when we lose sight of our horizon. And the way we're going to do this in Scripture is we're going to begin by looking at two examples. One who endured a very intimate, personal trial, and another who endured a very public, national trial. We're going to see how they responded to their trials. The trials in your life, the trials in my life, they'll likely fall somewhere between those two ends, either a very personal trial or a very corporate or national trial. But what we're going to see is that though their trials were very different, both of these saints were equipped well to respond to their trial, and they had far less scripture than we have today. We'll be looking at Job and we'll be looking at Jeremiah. Neither one of them had the Bibles, the full Bibles that we had today. They weren't even able to look at Jesus quite yet. They could see him. They knew a Messiah was coming. We have so much more of God's truth, so much more of God's revelation of his character and his promises. And yet, the truth that they had was enough. It was enough for them to respond well to their trials. Trials are hard. When we suddenly find ourselves in hard circumstances, when we suddenly lose sight of our horizon, how do we, what do we rely on? Do we rely on our, on, our, on our thoughts, on our feelings? Our responses to those trials, whether we stay wings level or start to drift without realizing it into a bank and then a dive, it's going to hinge on where we believe truth is found in that moment when the horizon is gone. So where do you believe truth is found this morning? If a trial came today, what do you know to be true about God? How would that impact your response? Do you know the character of God well enough to depend on it? to trust it more than how you feel. We're going to look at these examples in Scripture and ask, what lessons do we learn from these saints, from their responses? And what we're going to see is that what we believe about God before the trial comes determines how we respond to it. So again, if you're here this morning and you're not in a trial, please know what, what you believe about God before a trial comes is actually going to be what equips you to respond well to it when it does. So first, turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 1. We are going to look at Job. The first thing we're going to see about Job is his preparation. Job was one of the richest men of his day. He was likely a contemporary of Abraham, actually, because his wealth was not measured in silver or gold. As the Bible describes his wealth, it's measured in livestock, servants. He had a wife and ten children. He had a position of honor and influence in his community, and Job was a righteous man. This is the very first thing we learn about Job in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says that he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And chapter 1 actually tells us what Job was already in the habit of doing, how he was blameless, how he was upright, how he feared God. It tells us that every morning he would rise early and he would offer sacrifices to God, not just for himself, but on behalf of his children. See, Job was already in the habit of worshiping God and trusting God with his life before disaster came. He did not wake up the morning that disaster came and say, you know what, today is the day I'm going to start trusting God with everything I have, with everything I am. He had been in the habit of trusting God with his possessions, his children, for a long time before that. In Job 1 verse 5, it says this about Job's practice. It says, thus Job did continually he was continually in the habit of trusting God in this way. 
And the lesson for us here, as we know disaster is about to come to Job, is that the time to prepare for a trial is not when you wake up the morning that one comes. When disaster comes, that is not the day that we're going to pull out our Bible and say, I'm going to get through Leviticus today. Or I'm going to, I'm going to build a systematic theology about suffering today. That's not how that happens. The time for John F. Kennedy Jr. to learn how to depend on his instruments was not after he lost sight of the horizon, but before. The time to be reading our Bibles and deciding what we believe is true about God, depending on it and trusting everything in our lives to it, it's not in the middle of the trial, it's every day before that trial comes. We must know these things now. Be in the habit of depending on these things now so that when we lose sight of our horizon, we'll know where to look for dependable truth because we'll already have been in the habit of doing it. Job was prepared for his trial. And the second lesson we learn from Job is his response. Because the day came where Job lost everything. Read with me Job 1, starting in verse 13. It says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Within minutes of each other, messenger after messenger comes, each with worse news than the last. Job, you've lost your camels. Job, you've lost your sheep. Job, you've lost your children. Job has suddenly, in a moment, lost everything he has, and he's in a trial. But look with me at how he responds. In Job 1.20, it says this. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or, or charge God with wrong. Job has just lost everything, and his first response? Worship. Now stop. When was the last time something hard happened, and your first response was worship? And this isn't just big things. This begins in the small things. Sometimes we categorize the small trials differently. I mentioned this yesterday. Like, you know, when you step on a, a piece of glass or, or, or a Lego, which is basically the same feeling. <laughs> or when you're running late, do you mutter, do you complain? Or do you respond with worship? Lord, thank you for letting me step on that Lego, which feels just like a piece of glass. I wouldn't have chosen for that to happen. But you did. You have a purpose in it. Probably to sanctify me. You're still good, still worthy to be praised. Because how we respond to these smaller things is how we develop that habit. My husband used to say all the time, it's the Lord's will whenever something contrary would happen. Anything we wish wouldn't have happened, the big things, the small things, he used to always say it's the Lord's will when the day came where something tragic had happened and he received his diagnosis and we had to tell our kids, we 
drove out just to some place so we wouldn't traumatize them with McDonald's or something. Um, and, he, and he said the exact same thing to them when, when he told them what the diagnosis was. He says, what do we say when things like this happen? It's the Lord's will. He had developed a habit and instilled it in us as a family in the small things, in the everyday things. And so when the big things came, he was already prepared to respond to that. Job responded with worship. Now why? What did Job know about God before this day that led him to that response, that equipped him to have that response? Read with me what he declares again about God in Job 1.21. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job knew that God was sovereign over his circumstances. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Job knew it was God who had given him everything he had in the first place and that it was his prerogative to take it away. And consider for a moment the scope of God's sovereignty that Job is declaring here. Think about all of the different ways that Job just lost things. He is attributing the theft of animals, the murder of men, the evil designs of men's hearts with the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, he is attributing um, natural fire disasters, fire falling from the sky. He's attributing wind disasters, the wind that struck the home his children were in. He is attributing all of those things to the Lord. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. And even the role that we know Satan played in that, even he was under God's sovereign reign because the Lord gave him limits, right? You can touch all that he has, as we read in chapter 1, but don't touch him. And then, again, you can touch him, but don't take his life in chapter 2. Even Satan is not outside the realm of God's sovereign reign. He is under it. There is not a single molecule outside of God's control. God was sovereign. Job knew that. And this reality of the sovereignty of God will either be terrifying to you or very, very comforting you're here and you would say that maybe you're not in Christ yet, you're not sure, then that truth about the sovereignty of God, that ought to be a weighty truth and a terrifying truth. Because if you have made the God of the universe your enemy, you need to know that he is no small king. He is no passive sovereign. He is the Lord and your life is well within his domain. But if you're here and you would say that you are in Christ, that you're hoping in the Lord, then this facet of God's character, his sovereignty, should provide you so much comfort. Because that same all-powerful, sovereign God offers to be your refuge and your strength when trouble comes, to be your help. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? We serve a God who is sovereign so that when we plead with him about the various trials in our life and they do not change, we can rest assured that it's not for lack of God's power. It is because of his good purpose. He's sovereign. He's powerful. There was something better for us, he would give that to us instead. And that truth about God's sovereignty has been an anchor for me. The two attributes of God that have been absolute anchors for me in the past that continue to be the two most tangible anchors for me today are God's sovereignty and his goodness, which we'll talk about later. Job knew that God was sovereign, but Job also knew that regardless of his circumstances, God was still worthy to be praised. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And listen, it says that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. Job is still grieving and sorrowful. Look, trials are hard. There is grief. There is sorrow. That makes sense. But then he fell on the ground and he worshipped. And he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. This is more than accepting his circumstances. 
This is more than just not cursing God, more than just not grumbling. Because too often, sometimes, we define obedience in terms of what we don't do. But what Job actually does is he praises God. He is praising God. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's saying, yes, I have just lost everything, but God has done me no wrong. I blessed his name yesterday, and I'm going to bless his name today because he hasn't changed. He's still worthy to be praised. And this was the right response. It says in all this, Job, do not sin or charge God with wrong. Do we do this? Is this how we respond to losing things on this earth? When you lose your health for a while, when you lose your job, your keys, do you worship the Lord in this moment? Do you say, you are still worthy to be praised? And again in chapter 2, Satan afflicts Job with sores. He makes him miserable and, and itching and in pain from head to toe. Job responds again in 2 verse 10. He says to his wife, who is encouraging him to curse God and die, he, say, he calls her foolish and he says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity or evil? Job's life had been firmly built on the foundation of the character of God. He didn't just know God's character, right? We can see him right here. This is how you see whether or not you're trusting the Lord. It is in your response to these things when they come. He didn't just know the character of God. He trusted it. He believed it. He was in the habit of knowing it and trusting it. And he was equipped well to respond to his trial. And the final lesson we learn from Job is not just his response, it's his repentance. Endurance is hard. We mentioned that yesterday. It might be easy for us to trust God for a few days, a few weeks, maybe a few months. But what happens when our trial keeps going? When there's no end to it in sight? When that thing that you want just doesn't seem to be coming, or that thing you don't want doesn't seem to be leaving? When you long for children, you still don't have them, or you, or you long to be married, and you're still not with a spouse? Or when you want to be healthy and you're still not, you want someone you love to be healthy and they're still not? Or if you want your child or your spouse to be saved and they're still not? This is what happened with Job. His trial kept going. It did not seem to be abating. And as time went on, Job began to change his response towards God. The next 35 chapters, he began to complain, to question God's ways. He knows in his conscience that he was blameless and upright, and this is what God gives him? And that's how he begins to speak to God. In Job 9, Job says, Let me know why you contend against me. In chapter 19, he says, Know then that God has put me in the wrong. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He's asking God why. He's demanding answers. And God does answer Job if you turn to chapter 38 in Job. He does answer Job, but not in the way that Job expects. In Job 38, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he goes on, and all throughout this chapter, he's asking rhetorical questions of Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Obviously, Job wasn't born yet. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Obviously, Job doesn't know that. He doesn't ever actually answer Job's question of why specifically he brought those circumstances into Job's life. What he does tell Job and remind Job is that God is God, and Job is not. God is infinite. His ways are infinitely higher than our ways. His thoughts are infinitely 
higher than our thoughts. The Lord asked, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? And listen, that's exactly what Job was doing when he was questioning the infinite God of the universe. All Job had was words without knowledge. And all that we have apart from God's word is words without knowledge because he is God and we are not. And upon hearing this, if you flip over to chapter 40, a couple chapters later, upon hearing this from God, that he is God and Job is not, Job repents. In Job 40, verse 3, Job says, then, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account of what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer further twice, but I will proceed no further. And again, in chapter 42, if you flip over there, Job responds again in 42, verse 2, he answers the Lord again, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He had to repent. He began well. But as his trial kept going, Job forgot what he knew to be true about the character of God. He stopped trusting his instruments. He started trusting more what he thought, what he felt. He put his eyes on his circumstances. He took them off the Lord and how he is always worthy to be praised. And he put them on his circumstances. And it caused him to need to repent. He added sin to his circumstances, which just made it harder. His perspective was limited. That's what we talked about with Elijah yesterday, thinking that he was the only one left. Job did not have all the information God did. And instead of trusting that who God was and the fact that his ways were better, he began to question them. We want to be like Job's response, his first response in these trials all the time when he trusted God's character, even when he could not see in his circumstances. He worshiped. Endurance is hard. When our trials keep going, we have to be all the more diligent to depend on those instruments, to keep looking towards the Lord, to his character, trusting that foundation of our faith to hold fast instead of our own thoughts and feelings. Secondly, let's look at the prophet Jeremiah. Turn with me to Lamentations 3. There's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations it's a smaller book right after Jeremiah, Lamentations 3. Jeremiah is the author of this book. Job's trial was a very personal one, but Jeremiah's was very, very public, national. Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet sent to the southern kingdom of Judah to call them to repent from their idolatry. Israel had already been taken captive, and Jeremiah is pleading for them to repent God's so kind to send prophet after prophet to warn them. Disaster is going to come if you don't repent. Destruction is going to come if you don't repent. They did not listen to Jeremiah. They did not listen. They did not repent. And so God keeps his promises. Babylon besieged the city of Jerusalem, where Jeremiah is, for two years. And in the ensuing famine, the famine was so severe in the city because they cut it off from all, nat all, all natural resources that people, some people resorted even to eating their own children. Jeremiah was in a trial. He had witnessed horrific things. And he wrote a book about them called Lamentations. The first two chapters of this book are filled with Jeremiah's emotions. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. In chapter 120, he cries, My heart is wrung within me. And we find 
the summary, perhaps, of Jeremiah's emotional state in chapter 3, verse 17. Read with me. It says, he says, my soul is bereft of peace. Actually, we're going to start in 16 because he's talking about how this is the Lord who has done these things. And he says, he has made my teeth grind on gravel. He's made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Jeremiah's circumstances were difficult. Night has fallen and he's flying in a haze. He doesn't know which way is up, which way is down. He's lost sight of his horizon. And what Jeremiah does here in the deepest moment of his grief, where he places his trust right here, is going to determine the rest of his course. Structurally, in the Hebrew, the climax of the book comes in Jeremiah 3, verse 21. It's the exact middle of this book. And this is the pinnacle. This is the point of the book of Lamentations, the way it's structured. Read with me Lamentations 3, starting in verse 21. Jeremiah writes this. Just a few verses after saying, My hope from the Lord has perished, he said, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In verse 17, Jeremiah had no hope. His hope from the Lord had perished. But all of a sudden now, a few verses later, we read, Therefore, I have hope. What has changed? What has changed about Jeremiah's circumstances? Nothing. Nothing has changed about his circumstances. The point here is not in that which had changed, but in the one thing that never will. God's character, who he is, had not changed. And undergirding each one of these attributes of God that Jeremiah calls to mind is the fact that he knows that God, like Job, he knows that God is sovereign over his circumstances. In Lamentations 2, verse 17, he says, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he has commanded long ago. Jeremiah knows that this is the Lord's doing. He's sovereign over his circumstances. He didn't, Jeremiah didn't find any comfort in a God who had simply allowed these atrocities to take place. His circumstances were not the result of a lack of power on God's part. They were a result of his purpose. And knowing this, Jeremiah calls to mind what else he knows about the character of God that has not changed. He calls to mind God's steadfast love. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This is that same word that we saw with Joseph, chesed. It's that word that means God's kindness, his mercy, his goodness. It's God's covenant-keeping, gracious, loyal love that isn't dependent upon its object in any way. Jeremiah knew that even on this day, where Judah's sin had bitter consequences, that God's steadfast love for his people remained, and he hoped in it. He knew God's mercy. He says his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. The word for mercy here is compassion, pity even. In Papua New Guinea, we had a water tank to catch our rain. And it's rainy there a lot of the time. It's a tropical rainforest. But there's dry season, and we depended on that water. So during the dry season, we'd start to get anxious if that water started to run out. You could always measure how dry of a season you were having by the two waterfalls you could see from our porch. 
there was a big waterfall and there was a little waterfall. And the little, water, the little waterfall would always run out first. And then that big waterfall would get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the levels on our water tank, you know, you knock to see how, how high that level is. And the, the level just kept going down, kept going down. And we would get anxious that our water was running out. We needed rain. But God's mercy is not like that. We don't ever have to be anxious about God's mercy, his compassion towards us, his pity for us ever running out because it never will. They never come to an end. They will never be complete. They are new every morning. Jeremiah hoped in this. He trusted in this. It brought him hope when he was hopeless. And this is still the same God that we worship today. He is still merciful. He never changes. Back when I had first lost my husband, there were some nights that were really sad and really hard because trials are really sad and really hard and grief is real. And I would just be crying and I would look myself in the mirror and I would be like, Cameron, you just need to go to sleep. This is not the time to be thinking about these things. You need to go to sleep and trust that God's mercies are going to be new again in the morning because they will. And I would go to sleep and you know what? God's mercies have been new every single morning. They never run out. Jeremiah knew that. And Jeremiah knew God's faithfulness. He says, great is your faithfulness. We know what unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness is. If you've ever tried to commit to an aggressive diet program or an exercise plan, you know what unfaithfulness is. You can only stay with those things for so long. But God is not like us. He is faithful. He is always faithful to be who he says he is, to do what he promises to do. He's not like us. This is what makes God God. He's faithful. Jeremiah knew God's goodness. Verse 25, it says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And again, God is the definition of good. Jeremiah didn't just know these things. He trusted them. And how do we know that again? He didn't just know them. He exemplified them in his life. He goes from being hopeless to being hopeful, to having hope again. He goes from being in tumult to waiting quietly for the salvation of the Lord this is what trusting God looks like. This is how you know if you are trusting God in a trial. Do you have hope? Do you have peace in that trial? Are you trusting the Lord? Are you saying these things? The Lord's still good. His mercies never come to an end. That's what trusting God looks like. Jeremiah is trusting the character of God even when he can't see it in his circumstances. He knows it's still there. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 31, just a few verses later, he says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He says, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is my portion. Do you know what it means for God to be your portion in this life? For your hope not to be in anything else, but for it just to be in the Lord, for him, for him to satisfy your soul, him alone. Whom have I in heaven? Lord, but you, and on earth there is nothing I desire before you. He alone satisfies your soul. So if you were to lose everything else on this earth, you would still have him, and that would be enough. He's enough. The Lord was Jeremiah's portion. He was satisfied with his goodness. You can almost feel the effort it takes for Jeremiah to pry his eyes off of his circumstances here. After two chapters, if you read those two chapters of how hard-pressed Jeremiah was in his circumstances, he has to pry his eyes off of his own thoughts, off of his own feelings and circumstances and fix them on God. But he does this. This is what he does. And I just want you to notice what he does with his emotions because it's instructive for us. He doesn't ignore his emotions. Again, he wrote a book called Lamentations. It's 
the book full of his emotions, but he reigns them in with truth. Because emotions are not bad things. God gave us our emotions, and when submitted to him, they are wonderful expressions of who, of who we are, who he is. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. But if we do not rule over our emotions in trials, my friends, they will rule over us. Without being reined in with truth, emotions will lead us to drift, to bank ever so slightly, and to start to descend and go into that graveyard spiral that JFK Jr. went into. On his darkest day and his deepest moment of grief, Jeremiah held on to this, the foundation of his faith, the character of God. This is what it looks like to trust God's character in difficult circumstances. You look away from your circumstances and you trust that God is still who he says he is. You believe that over your fears, your doubts, your anxieties. Jeremiah hoped in the character of God and his sovereignty and his goodness. He looked away from his circumstances. In, in 1758, Jonathan Edwards, just want to give you a couple of more modern examples of what it looks like to trust and hope in the character of God, specifically in God's goodness. Jonathan Edwards died from being inoculated for smallpox. He left behind his wife, Sarah Edwards, and their 10 children. And when Sarah heard that her husband had died, the first thing she did was write a letter to her oldest daughter, and she wrote this. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God. There I am and there I love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. Was the Lord Sarah Edwards' portion on this day? Was she satisfied with him alone? Did she trust his character more than her, than her eyes could see? He had her heart. She trusted him. And similarly, George Mueller, who cared for orphans in London in the 1800s, when he heard that his wife that he had been married to for 39 years was dying, he said this, when I heard what the doctor's judgment was, though my heart was nigh to be broken on account of the depth of my affection, I said to myself, the Lord is good and doeth good. All will be according to his own blessed character. Nothing but that which is good like himself can proceed from him. If he pleases to take my dearest wife, it will be good like himself. What I have to do as his child is to be satisfied with what my father does, that I may glorify him. Is this you? When a trial comes, are you satisfied with what your father does and glorify him? Is that what comes out of your heart, into your thoughts, out of your mouth? And this is not a perfect process. Your thoughts will go many places. Your emotions will go many places. It's not about not going to those places. It's not about not being anxious or, or bitter or things like that. It's about what we do when we find ourselves to be that way. Do we rein ourselves in like Jeremiah does here and remind ourselves of the character of God to be satisfied with what he does? Hide yourself in his sovereignty, his goodness, his mercy. One of our pastors uh, a couple of years ago, went through a severe trial at our church. Um, he and his wife had four children, and the youngest of whom, Caleb, was five years old at the time. And uh, some of you might know this story, I'm not sure, but 
um, two years ago in October. Uh, they, were, they had gone up to their family's cabin in northern Arizona um, that they would go to sometimes, and they were packing up to go home. They were packing the truck up. The kids were helping uh, Josh, my pastor, pack up. And then he sent the kids off to go play, and he needed to pull the truck up just a few feet to the house to get it a little bit closer. And so he checks, and the kids were in the field. Um, he thought he saw all the kids in the field um, playing. And so he pulled his truck up just a few feet, and he ran over his son, Caleb, who had um, been in front of the tire, and he couldn't see him. And on that day, as Josh tells this story, and this is just the testimony of his life, he's administering CPR to his crushed child who passed away instantly. But he's administering CPR, and and, um, Josh is just saying out loud as he's doing it, he's saying, I know that you are good, Lord. I know that you are good. And in that moment, Josh clung to the character of God, and his wife did the same thing. The Lord put them through that trial for his purposes, and they hid themselves in the character of God. They knew who he was before that day came. Their portion was in him alone. And so there was not anger there. There was trust, and there was a refuge for them in that place. The goodness of God is a a refuge, making him your portion before the day of trial to be satisfied with him alone is what we have to do now to be prepared for that. And it is the most encouraging thing to hear people who have gone through those trials say the same thing. We're not all going to go through that trial by God's grace, but that God is our God. He is still good. He is enough for Josh Kelso, for the Kelso family. He is enough for me. He is enough for you. He is good. He is who he says he is. He is faithful. Jeremiah knew this. He knew the character of God. And so when he watched his city be burned down, every soul in it either taken captive or be put to death with the sword, when he saw those things happen and he was hopeless, he called to mind the character of God, and therefore he had hope. And that family, that Kelso family, they still have hope to this day. They just planted a church in Gilbert. Are we doing this? When life's trials come upon us, big or small, especially in the small things, to be developing a habit? Do you look away from your circumstances? Do you call to mind God's character and do you trust it? Trust that he is still in control, he's still sovereign, he's still faithful, he's still good, he does not change. Jeremiah knew these things before the day of trouble so that he could call them to mind when they came. And you can't call something to mind that you don't know. And that's, again, why we have to be reading our Bibles, why we have to know these things, these little passages in the book of Lamentations in our Bibles. Josh had been in the habit, his whole family had been in the habit of reading God's Word for a very long time. My husband and I did not respond like that because we woke up that morning and started reading our Bibles. We've been reading the whole entirety of the counsel of God, his whole Word from Genesis to Revelation for a decade before that happened. And so we were able to call those truths to mind and trust them on that day. Both Job and Jeremiah had as their foundation the character of God, and in this they were equipped to respond well. And again, they didn't even have the cross to look to to see the goodness of God in that. We do. 
We can look at what God did on the cross to save us from our sin and say, the God who would do that, the God who would go to those lengths for me, he will not, how could he possibly do anything less for me now when he did the greatest for me on the cross? It's helpful to look at these examples because we see something of ourselves in them. Maybe your trials are small. Maybe they are not small. Maybe they are big. Or maybe there's something coming that we can't quite see yet and we prepare for them now. And you might be able to look at your responses in trial and see some of Job. Yeah, I started that trial really well. Trust in the Lord, but I, di- I didn't endure. I'm not enduring very well. Maybe you need to repent later. I've had to do that a few times. Or you might see a, some of Jeremiah in your life, overcome by your emotions, letting yourself be dragged away with the wild horses of your thoughts, only to come back to this place and recall truth to mind. You might be somewhere in between. Either way, your foundation is the character of God, his promises, and in that you are equipped well to respond to trials and to endure, and not just to endure, but to endure with joy because you know who he is and you know what he promises to do. Turn to 2 Peter 1. Spend the rest of our time in this passage. I just want you to see how well-equipped we are. This verse, these, these verses might be familiar to some of you. The book of 2 Peter was likely Peter's last letter before his death. He is writing in the midst of much persecution. Again, the backdrop here is trials. Emperor Nero was uh, in charge of the Roman Empire. And I don't know if you know anything about Nero, but he was not a good guy. He, at all, he was severe. Uh, He burned the city of Rome to the ground, and when he needed a scapegoat for that, you moms who homeschool are like, yes, I know the story of Nero. Um, Or maybe other people do. But when he burned Rome to the ground and he needed a scapegoat for it, he blamed the Christians. And so there arose a mass persecution of Christians. So these people are suffering. This is his context. Peter himself will die under Emperor Nero, according to church history. And to make matters worse, even in the midst of all of this persecution and suffering, actually the theme of Peter's letter is is false teaching and trying to discern truth from error. Um, that, that, that false teaching doesn't stop just because trials come. You actually still have to hold on to truth, to doctrine. In the midst of trials, it's easy to get swept away. And so Peter is writing to remind his fellow brothers and sisters of what they already know to be true. And this is encouraging for us in verse 12 of chapter 1. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder He's just reminding them of what they already know. And in a sense, that is all that I'm doing here this weekend. Many of you know these things. And I'm just here to remind you of these things because this is what we have to do because we forget. We forget. I forget every morning. So he's reminding them of of, of what is true, of what they know about Christ to be true. And he's reminding them of how well-equipped they are to battle here, both persecution and false teaching. And so read with me in 2 Peter, verses 3 through 4, how he opens this letter after his greeting. He writes this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This passage 
is all about sanctification. It's all about us being made more like Christ, all about us increasing in holiness. What Peter had most on his mind about God's people going through this persecution was actually them continuing to live holy lives. Your holy life, your, your level of fighting your sin matters when a trial comes. It is not an excuse for us to give in to sin at that point. It matters. It is crucial. It says his divine power has granted to us all things, that all things um, phrase, it comes first in the Greek text. And when something comes first in the Greek text, it, it emphasizes, it's, an, it's, an, it's a point of emphasis. So this emphasizes the completeness. We have all things. We lack nothing spiritually to fight our sin and to grow in holiness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Listen, if you are a believer, this is what happened at salvation when you trusted in Christ. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And that call who called us to his own glory and excellence, that's the call of salvation. Romans 8.30, it's the same call. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. At salvation, you are granted everything you needed for life and godliness, to endure trials well, everything you needed for sanctification, to be holy as God is holy, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, and to become more like Christ. So where do we look for these things? Where do we have everything that we need? According to this passage, we have it in the power and the promises of God. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We don't have in ourselves what we need for life and godliness. We cannot sanctify ourselves. That's like asking a light bulb to turn on without being connected to a power source. It has to come from an outside of us. It's His divine power that gives to us everything we need. And whose divine power? So that his, the referent, the antecedent, that his, prior to studying this passage, I would have said it was God the Father, but this is actually in reference, the most immediate antecedent is Jesus. Jesus our Lord in verse 2. It is Christ's power that gives us everything we need to live holy lives. Think about Christ's power. We talked about this yesterday, that his power to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons, control nature, pick up his own life from the grave. Romans 1, 4 says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. It's that power, Christ's power, that helps us fight our sin, grow in holiness. And there's a sweetness in the fact that it is Christ's power that gives us everything we need to be made more like him. We can't muster up in ourselves the power to fight our sin and to hold on and to respond well in trials. That power comes through Christ alone, and it is sufficient to give us everything we need. We look to the power of God, and again, we look to that in his word to see Christ's power on display in the pages of scripture, and we're equipped to respond well. We look to the power of God, and secondly, we look to the promises of God. It says, by the glory, through the glory, um, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So first, I just want you to think, what is the purpose of the promises of God? is a popular thing in cultural Christianity as well. God's promises. What is the purpose of God giving us promises? How would you answer that question? Is it to give us comfort in this life? Did God give us his promises to help us navigate difficult times? I mean, yes, they do accomplish those things, but that's not their primary purpose in this passage. It says this. It says he's granted to us his precious and very great promises. Why? So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. 
The purpose of the promises of God is our sanctification, to make us more like Christ. Know what the promises of God are not. They're not designed to make our lives easier here on this earth. They're not designed as some sort of promise compilation self-help book. They're not designed to make us more successful here on this earth, temporally or materially. The promises of God are designed to make us more like Christ. That's their purpose. And how do they do that? How do they give us everything we need for life and godliness? How do they help us respond well to trials? Because they transform our perspective to be like God's. When we know and believe the promises of God about trials specifically, that's how we can endure them with joy. We saw this with James 1-2. We know what God is doing in those trials. We see the same thing in Romans 8-28, this statement about how God works all things for the good of those who love them. And what kind of good did Paul have in mind when he was writing that in Romans 8:28? We know that God works all things for the good of those who love him. The verse right after that, it tells us what kind of good Paul had in mind. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul's definition of circumstances working for good is that which makes us more like Christ. Is that your definition of circumstances working for good? Whatever makes you more like Christ. We don't have to be anxious about our present circumstances because we have these promises, because we know that our Father has promised to turn bad things into good for our sanctification, for his glory, to make us more like Christ. Romans 8.32, a verse I have mentioned and held on to in trial quite a bit, it says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The point here is that if we know if God paid that, if we know that God paid the highest price possible to save us in the first place, how much more will he do lesser things like provide life and godliness for us to go through trials? Listen, if adverse circumstances come into your life, you can be sure from this promise that they come from the hand of your Father who loves you and is working them for your good. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And there are other promises that are helpful for us. James 1.5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This is a promise. This promise for wisdom is a promise I use every time I have a child come into my room after I've laid everyone down with like a serious issue. It's always like nerve-wracking. I'm like, oh no. Oh no, you're out of bed. What's going on? And then I'm reaching for my Bible and I'm just saying this promise to myself, Lord, you'll give me wisdom. It's hard navigating those things as a single parent. It's hard, even if you're not a single parent, it's hard navigating those things. My 16-year-old, I don't know the answers to all her problems, but the Lord does. When we're anxious, we read verses like Philippians 4, 6, and 7 to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with left thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we cast ourselves on him and we believe this promise, that he will give us peace in that when we're trusting his character in the midst of our trials. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Again, these are promises that we hold on to. He won't let us go. He will hold us fast. Paul's confidence in, in us being sustained in our faith in that, in that verse in Philippians about him finishing the work he starts in us, his confidence is in their completion because God started it and God will finish it because he is faithful. And so we depend on these things. These are our instruments. This is where we look 
We look away from our own thoughts and feelings and trial. We look to the power of God. We look to his promises to uphold us and sustain us. We take our eyes off of ourselves and we put them on him. It's easy to become discouraged and, and to become weary. And it is especially then when we feel weak that we need to be doing these things. We are equipped well to respond to trials. We have everything we need for life and godliness in the power of God and in his promises. And there are so many examples in scripture where we see people doing this, looking away from their circumstances and looking to God. We want to model those things. We want to be like those things. Is this you? Are you depending on God's character in this way? Are you hoping in that foundation of your faith, in his character, his power, his promises? We are well-equipped to endure trials and to do it with joy because of these things. Will you pray with me? Father, again, Lord, we're just thankful for the completeness of your word. We are thankful for your power and promises that give us everything we need to endure the small trials in this life, the inconveniences, and the larger trials. Lord, we are thankful for your character, um, especially as we see it expressed on the cross, Lord, that we know that you didn't spare your own son, that we can trust you to help us in the smaller things that we go through on this, on this earth, Lord. We thank you for your sovereignty, your goodness, your mercy, these things that never change, even when the circumstances of our life do Lord, I just pray for the ladies here tonight, if they are in a trial or, um, or if there's one coming just down the road for them, Lord, that they would be preparing now for these things, that they would be in the habit now of, of knowing these things and hiding themselves in these things so that when the day comes, they would be, that they would respond well, that we can together, Lord, endure trials with joy and, and give glory to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.